This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Yahara goes back to school. Hello everybody, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review, critique, philosophy, whatever we feel like, podcast. My name is Gepwin. I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we watched a weird one. Odd and seems to be the basis of the later movie. So basically Star Trek motion picture, but in the 60s. Yeah. It is called The Changeling. Wait, wait. Odo's in this one? Wait, no, no, he's not. (laughs) This is because of a very awkwardly forced reference that i was like unable to actually work into the synopsis because it's just a weird aside that they go into for no reason we need to have a reason to justify the name of the episode let's do this (laughs) yeah basically he just goes on this long tangent of like oh it's like that old earth myth about fairies who would steal human babies and impersonate them which uh did remind me that there is a uh, world of darkness uh you know uh, a book that's basically about that. But that's irrelevant right now. <laughs> <laughs> you could have done something with that, maybe. I don't know why this is called the change. Why doesn't? Why didn't they just call it Nomad? Well, that would make sense. Fine name. Unless they were planning to have a different episode at some point called Nomad, but then... Then they didn't. They didn't? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. This episode was written by John Meredith Lucas, who is actually best known as a Star Trek writer. He did a few contemporary shows, but nothing that took off as much as Star Trek. Yes. Uh, you know, other things he was involved in was like some Westworld and uh, a fugitive. There is only one guest star this episode because we have a bottle episode today. Yeah, no alien planets, just on the Enterprise. And I guess technically looking out at the Enterprise, but mostly on the Enterprise. Yep, we are joined this time by the voice of Vic Pern, who did not a, like some other voice work from the time. So. He was he was in Johnny Quest. That's true. Yeah, old time <laughs> radio. <laughs> I didn't know that was an actual turret. Like the Wikipedia thing entry on him literally says was a regular performer on old time radio. <laughs> well, I, I guess. Uh... You know, it's radio that's from olden times, I guess. So I guess it's descriptive. <laughs> I suppose it, it it makes enough sense for the, everyone knows what you mean. It's like we're we're a couple episodes into the second season now, mm-hmm. and I'm noticing like the episodes plots themselves have not improved. Generally, yes, but the level of writing and character interaction and dialogue has greatly improved yes it's like these are like kind of like people now it's kind of weird <laughs> it's night and day and i start i started enjoying it more like i see why people talk about original star trek in the way they do a little more now even though the actual plots are still nonsensical <laughs> badly written and slow yeah because yeah now we at least have more interesting people to be sort of you know presenting these uh, you know kind of uh, hoagie plots with and we're like, oh, I, I, I guess I can sort of connect with this person. Um, I, I think, you know, maybe this, you know, is for me the the tipping point where things sort of, you know, started markedly improving uh, was in a space seed where uh, McCoy's like, yeah, I just cut my throat, man, do it. <laughs> yeah, he had the character. He wasn't just drunken Doctor Man. Yep. <laughs> I mean, he's still kind of just drunken Doctor Man, but at least he's not yelling about Scotty hitting on people in this yes. episode. <laughs> That was still so weird. <laughs> but I guess they needed somebody to do it, and McCoy was the only one that made any sense for <laughs> Now, I think this is going to wind up being probably around the same as some other episodes, but I just want to comment that this is actually the shortest synopsis I've ever written, because so much of this episode is slowly walking through hallways with no dialogue. Yes, or floating through hallways, you know. Yeah, as the case may be. <laughs> we join the Enterprise as it is responding to a distress call from some people called the Malarians. I hope we meet these guys. They seem to be in a, a bit of a you know, dire straits, and you know, and uh, we're going to be uh, going out there and uh, helping them out and uh, solving all their problems, aren't we? They're apparently all dead. Oh, never mind then. Their planet is now completely devoid of all life. Just then. The shields snap on, which is apparently something they do by themselves. 
Well, I guess it's probably a good idea if, like, you're being fired upon, your shield, you know, your ship's, like, smart enough to, like, go, oh, crap, let's not die now. It's it's a little thing, but it was just weirdly interesting that it's, like, the shields came on, we must be in danger. Not, the ship has told us we are in danger, and the shields came on. Yes. <laughs> a powerful bolt of energy strikes the shields of the ship, which apparently take 20% damage to the shields and spock says they can take four more hits before the shields go down because mass ouchies it was interesting that they decided to have simple but accurate math yeah you know it uh <laughs> helps the uh, the audience uh follow along a bit more with all the you know the technical stuff here they managed to kind of find whatever is shooting at them after it hits them a couple more times they hit it with a photon torpedo, but it apparently just no-sells it and takes no damage. Yeah, you know, as you do. You know, I can do that too, right? You can do that as well, right? They have this thing, that, like, the, the energy blast that they are hit with and, you know, can survive four of mm -hmm. is apparently as powerful as 90 of their photon torpedoes. Yes. But then this thing tanks one torpedo, and they're like, oh my god, that's impossible. <laughs> It's almost like it has some sort of shield. <laughs> after a couple more shots, their shields are down, and after he's figured out that he can't blow it up, Kirks decides that he's going to try to communicate with it. Say hello. He pleased with the other sh ship to stop shooting at them because they are peaceful, and it does. Oh, well, that was convenient. Spock scans it, discovers that the thing that was shooting at them is actually a somewhat cylindrical-shaped thing that's only about a meter or so long. Mm. Wait, is this a monolith? Maybe. It sends back a message in old-timey binary, apparently, requesting Kirk to repeat his original message. It does, and then it sends a message requesting that it can download the ship's translation software. Oh, that's useful, you know, being able to communicate and, uh, yeah, no god, what's it doing now? Yeah, it breaks the ship. It downloads stuff so fast that it physically breaks the computer. <laughs> Which I guess is how computers work, I guess. Yeah, well, Especially later the on, they're, like, giving some information from the computers, and it sounds like a really fast reel-to-reel -reel player. Yes. So they're using some sort of version of reel-to-reel -reel tapes, I guess. Yeah, they do mention tapes a lot, so... Yeah, yeah. they do. We were talking about this the other day. Like, magnetic tapes are a better archival storage medium so maybe they just need it to last a while in space so they reel to reel it you know once you're out in space or you your vessel's getting exposed to all sorts of high energy particles and uh you know even with like futuristic shield stuff you know it's not gonna be stopping everything so you want to make sure it's not going to be uh you know you know artificially degrading your uh your your your, your hard drives or whatever uh you know so quickly so, yeah, maybe it's the just the practical answer here. <laughs> After it breaks the computer, the thing that was firing at them announces itself as Nomad. Hello, Nomad. Do you wander around and, uh, you know, do stuff? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Kirk tells Nomad that they cannot board its ship because it is too small for them, being oh. about a meter long. Yes. <laughs> I'm too big and huge and large. Nomad yells non sequitur and tells them that it can just come aboard their ship. Okay. <laughs> Kirk asks if it needs any special atmosphere and it says no, which, of course, because anyone would say, no, I don't need any special atmosphere, just the one I breathe. Oh my God, why is there so much oxygen here? What are you doing to me? <laughs> exactly. I thought you guys breathed methane too. Come on, jeepers. He's asked for a special. Like, I, ev doesn't everyone just breathe argon? <laughs> it's a bad choice as a noble gas, but oh well. <laughs> well. Maybe it's some sort of really bizarre chemistry they got going. They beam aboard a satellite-looking thing with an antenna on top. It's kind of neat design. It floats around. I, I thought it's pretty cool. It has a protective screen that prevents them from scanning it, and Kirk asks if they want to leave their ship, I guess assuming that they are very tiny, like, Lillipugnians or something in there. That would be, be pretty cool, you know? These little dudes running around, and you're like, well, we've got to make sure we don't step on these alien visitors, guys. Did you ever see the Gargantuans from, uh, from Buzz Lightyear, the TV show? I do not believe so. That was an amazing cartoon, and they had a whole race of aliens that were, like, themed somewhat Russian called the Gargantuans, and the entire thing with them was they were all about 10 inches tall. 
<laughs> nice. <laughs> we're huge. You guys are bigger. <laughs> yeah, that was the whole thing. They were like weird radical isolationists who like thought they were better than everyone. <laughs> hmm, that does sometimes seem like Russia. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was such a great show, and no one, no one saw Buzz Lightyear Star Command for some reason. I saw a few uh, bits of it here and there, but you know, it was kind of, yeah, I guess, mostly on TV when I wasn't watching TV very much anymore. So, Nomad tells them that in fact it does not have any parasitic life forms in it. Oh, then that's good. McCoy says he doesn't think that there's anyone in there, and Scotty agrees that in his opinion, this thing is a machine. You're saying we're talking to some sort of robot? Yeah. To prove the point, Nomad asks them what an opinion is. They do not give a very good answer. Nope. <laughs> well, I have an op- you know, my opinion is that um, you suck. Not computable. What? <laughs> Kirk remembers that there was apparently an Earth probe named Nomad that was launched sometimes in the early 2000s, but it was presumed destroyed when it impacted with a meteorite. Well, uh, was the impact intentional? We do that nowadays. Yeah, I mean, they might have. They sh- probably shouldn't, given this. <laughs> We have to shut down NASA quick, otherwise billions of people will be murdered in the future. Nomad asks Kirk for their point of origin, and he decides to take Nomad off to see some star charts. Oh, and uh, it's like, yeah, I, you know, don't worry about downloading, I'll just go with you. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Upon seeing a map of the home solar system, Nomad gets excited for a computer and asks Kirk to confirm that he is in fact from the third planet with the large single satellite that is known as Earth. Um, yeah. If he is, he must be Creator Kirk. Um, uh, yeah, you know, um, I, I guess I am a creator. Um, you know. and he goes, oopsies, I guess I didn't have to try to sterilize you. And Kirk goes, wait, what about sterilization now? But Nomad's too excited to have found his daddy. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, it's obviously this robot's, you know, really into Kirk. And, you know, wants to be, you know, like, you know, be his friend and do everything he says. Nomad finally admits that it is his programmed function to seek out biological infestation and to sterilize it. So you're going to seek out new life and new civilizations then destroy them forever. Yeah, like those dirty, dirty malarians. Kirk is about to reveal that he is actually not the one who made the murder bot, but Spock, who's smarter than him, tells him not to and pulls him into the hallway. You know, Kirk, um, you don't, you don't want to get us all killed here, right? <laughs> yeah, Spock thinks they need to keep up with this creator nonsense because it seems like this thing came from Earth and they need to, you know, be able to not have it kill them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Back in the control room where Nomad is waiting for them, Uhura calls the ensign who's waiting around in there. And while he's checking on something, she begins to sing quietly to herself over the intercom. Seems like a odd thing for the communication officer to do, but you know, plot-wise, you know, they needed it. <laughs> in context of the what's going on, you know, she, she's kind of waiting for the uh, ensign to sort of get back to, uh, with the report, whatever. Um, and I guess she's just kind of bored. Um, but then, you know, the Nomad starts listening. Yes, Nomad seems intrigued, and then floats off while the ensign's back is turned. Sneaky, sneaky robots. Yeah, just leaves. With the noisy, noisy doors. I guess it's seeking out new life and new civilizations that are singing now. Spock has gotten together some visual aids for us. And he gives a presentation on a man named Jackson Roykirk. Is this, uh, you know, related to the, uh, the, the, the Boston Roykirks? Maybe. <laughs> he is apparently an erratic scientist who dreamed of building the perfect machine. So I... I- I'm going to point out that uh, saying that he's an erratic scientist is kind is kind of like saying you know, a, a tree that has bark. One <laughs> of them do. It, it just it just comes with the territory. Somewhat redundant. Redundant. You know, as a scientist, I can say this. <laughs> <laughs> he is the man who launched the original Nomad probe, and apparently, at some point in the past, Nomad's memory circuits were damaged, and it now has confused Kirk and Roy Kirk, who was its true creator. Yeah, it seems to be have been sort so sort of like combined with something else, something some other structure, some sort of probe, perhaps. Except, yes, they realized that this probe was not very advanced, and it was not programmed to destroy life. It was programmed as an exploratory mission to find life, and didn't have 
90 photon torpedoes worth of firepower on board either back then. They don't say that specifically, but probably That's kind not. Of fine. Yeah. <laughs> Kirk is then informed that Nomad wandered away. As soon as he's informed of this, Nomad appears on the bridge, so they go off to be there. Suddenly on the bridge, Nomad's here. <laughs> Nomad approaches Uhura, who is still singing. Nomad asks her what it's for. You know, Nomad has his antenna out the, this entire uh, trip, and he pulls it back, and uh, it's like, you know, I need to use this to track down the singing, and now I need to extract the information from Uhura. Yeah, she, like, no, no one on this ship is prepared to have a philosophical definitional discussion of art with this robot you guys seem like a philosopher on board or something Come yeah on. she just goes i don't know i like singing that's what it's for and then the robot downloads her brain like literally <laughs> this is mine now Seems <laughs> something at her head she goes all catatonic scotty runs up to stop it and gets killed like yeah, actually confirmed yeah. killed yep mccoy confirms this with a he's dead jim like an actual he's dead gym with the words and everything. <laughs> Kirk is very upset about how, you know, they killed Scotty and also Uhura is blanked out. Nomad makes a sexist comment about Uhura being a mass of conflicting impulses. They just had to uh, put one of those in there. Yeah. You guys are so close. You barely had women in this episode at all. You were so close to not being sexist this time. Man. Then Nomad asks Kirk if they want him to repair Scotty. Um, are you a surgeon? Nomad downloads all the anatomical information they have on board and then is taken to sickbay where he does something and Scotty just wakes up and goes, where am I? Well, you were dead for a little while. How do you feel? Kirk tells Nomad to also heal Uhura, but it can't because she is not damaged he just downloaded all the knowledge in her brain so what does that mean uh, do you just like take out the memory engrams uh, did you unwire her brain uh, no one's <laughs> sure but yeah. spock theorizes that if only the knowledge was removed then she may be able to be re-educated over many 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 years you know like a normal person <laughs> Perhaps. They must have way better schooling systems in the future. I guess. <laughs> Kirk is just about to yell at Nomad for you know, killing people and blanking out Ahura, but Spock stops him and sends Nomad away to the brig. That's probably a good place to put him. <laughs> he explains that Nomad is a very, very logical entity and would probably not understand anger and may act unpredictably, because logically you have to act unpredictably to something you don't understand, I guess. Yeah. I guess maybe it's more implying that it would act unpredictable to the crew there, that they don't know the full extent of its programming and what you know how it would respond to various stimuli. And so it's sort of a uh, perceptual unpredictability as opposed to an actual unpredictability. Kirk announces his intentions to render Nomad harmless, and he sends Spock to examine it. In Nomad's new brig home, Spock is very frustrated because Nomad won't let him scan it, but... Kirk orders Nomad to cooperate, and that is the extent of this scene. You know, Spock's just kind of like hanging out there. It's like, well, I can't do anything until Kirk comes in here to tell it what to do. <laughs> we have an aside back to Sick Bay, where Nurse Chapel is teaching Ahura to read with a Dick and Jane book. Yep, it's kind of an awkward scene. School has not improved. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, nothing's improved, and we're all pretty, pretty slow, but I guess she's moving quickly going from having no knowledge whatsoever about the world anymore to being able to read kind of the other <laughs> thing is she keeps switching over to reading in swahili mm -hmm. and chapel keeps having to correct her that she should be using english so did they teach her swahili first um maybe <laughs> or did he on, did nomad only blank out the english part and she could still do everything just in swahili that'd be kind of awesome actually yeah, that should have just been her character for the rest of the show. Yeah, it's like, well, she speaks in Swahili now. She understands what we're talking about, but uh, she's still a great communications officer. Yeah, why don't they just do that? Like, Next Generation had that first season joke of having the blind man driving the ship. Why don't yep. they have the person who doesn't speak English being the communication officer? That'd be great. <laughs> in the brig, Spock decides that he needs to mind meld with Nomad. I guess works? They don't go into it why it works it's a sufficiently advanced mind that it's uh, can work with psychic powers yeah this this is painful to watch and takes way too long but the general gist 
is that Nomad, who was damaged by a meteor collision shortly after leaving Earth, drifted through space for an indefinite period of time until an alien... 900 years, okay. (laughs) I'm just going to say that. (laughs) Until it then encountered an alien probe named Tanru. The two probes merged and somehow repaired each other or just Nomad. It's unclear what Tanru was up to. I have some ideas about that later, but yeah, keep going. (laughs) This increases Nomad's power and combined their programming, which apparently Nomad was programmed to seek out life, and Tanru was sent out to sterilize soil samples. Kind of the same thing as wipe out all life, but, you know, when you combine them together, it gets even worse. Go from soil samples to, like, whole people. Kirk is upset about Nomad being all crazy and space-happy because it's bonded with him and thinks he's its mother. (laughs) Zox says that this is basically the only thing that has kept them alive thus far. It it wants a parent, and you're a parent, otherwise we'd all be dead, so... um... You know, make sure to raise your kids well. And oh wait, I remember the last time you tried to be like a responsible <laughs> father figure for somebody. Um, hmm. We're all doomed, aren't we? Yep. Yep. Nomad decides that it's time to go. Uh, the two guards in the brig try to stop it and are vaporized. Nomad then goes to engineering, where they make adjustments on the ship until it starts going over warp eleven. So I guess we've broken the warp ten barrier already. Good job, yeah, the guys. warp the warp ten barrier didn't exist until Star Trek Voyager. Yes, <laughs> that was that was when they invented it. Did a dumb episode with it and then forgot about it forever. Probably for the best. Because <laughs> I I remember uh, sort of aside here. I remember in uh, some of the tech uh, specs uh, during the Next Generation era uh, when I was a but a young person here uh, that uh, like the Romulan warbirds could apparently do like warp fifteen, and I was like. Sort of big deal and fall back. I mean, even in the freaking in the last episode of Next Gen, they have ships doing warp thirteen. Yes. <laughs> so I guess maybe it's good thing uh, for all the reason that Threshold just sort of ignored. <laughs> well, they didn't. They didn't have warp at this time. They didn't have it figured out at all. It was just numbers. Yep. It was just random <laughs> numbers. In fact, I remember uh, earlier, the, you know, the series, uh, you know, like warp five was like a big deal. <laughs> now they've gone warp eleven. We've got up to 11, man. Kirk arrives and orders Nomad to stop improving the ship because the ship is going to break. But I was fixing things. He also complains that Nomad killed guards. Well, it did. He's not as upset as, as when it killed Scotty. You made some guards vanish. What'd you do with them? I vaporized them. Oh, I guess that's harder to fix. Hmm. I guess I won't worry about it then. <laughs> Nomad complains that the biological units on the ship are imperfect and he must destroy imperfection. Uh, Kirk then yells that he's also a biological unit and he is Nomad's creator. And Nomad goes, you've given me a lot to think about. All right, Dad, I guess I have to think about this. Are you saying I'm adopted? Nomad decides to take a detour on the way back to the brig. Again, two guards try to stop it and two guards are vaporized. Well, we got a body count of four now. (laughs) Kirk gets an emergency call that Nomad has attacked McCoy in sickbay and when they arrive, they find McCoy knocked out. So I guess he's nicer to McCoy than anyone else. Chapel's there as well and, you know, they're they're fine. They're not vaporized. Nomad was apparently there to download the personnel files, including Kirk's. Scotty then calls to tell them that Nomad turned off life support. Oh no, our breathing air. Kirk orders them to grab some anti-gravity lifts and meet him in engineering to confront Nomad. I kind of like the anti-gravity lifts there. You know, something I'd like to see more often in this sort of show. It's just, why does this weigh nothing? We have an anti-gravity lift. Don't worry about it. It's not styrofoam. <laughs> Kirk confronts Nomad in engineering. He says that he is programmed to destroy the imperfect biological beings until he's turned off life support so he can still have the ship. Because the ship's fine. Needs some improvement, but, you know, ship's fine. Yeah, he can work on the ship and make it better and, uh, you know, get over that whole structural flaw thing that will make it explode at warp, warp 12 or whatever. Yeah, you hit a big problem in a second when it talks about how it's okay that it can fix the ship. Kirk asks if any imperfection must be destroyed, and Nomad says, yeah, of course, it's imperfection, and I must destroy imperfection. And Kirk goes, ha-ha, you're imperfect, because I'm not actually your creator, so you made a mistake. Dun, dun, dun. Nomad, of course, bowing down to Kirk's superior machine logic brain, goes, oh no, error, error, I must blow myself up now. 
Oh no, I am confused and I was wrong slightly, so I must self-destruct. Oh. Yep, they take it to the teleporter and as soon as Kirk is assured that it is planning to destroy itself, he beams it into space where it explodes. Blamers. Back on the bridge... Spock congratulates Kirk on his logic. McCoy reports that Uhura is back to a college-level education after oh, she'll just be fine. a day. You know. I guess college is not what it used to be. Yeah, you know, college, yeah, you got you get your degree in, like, second grade. It's fine. <laughs> Spock laments about destroying Nomad because it would have been useful to study. But Kirk tells him that he is actually the one who's hurt because he lost a son. The son he only kind of knew. <laughs> And obviously it was such a good surgeon. This is my son, the doctor. Yeah, as far as these these kind of what the hell uh, ending jokes go, this is one of the better ones I have. Yeah, to say. this is about this is the best ending scene we've had so far. Yes. It is weird given that they seem to go into a vaudevillian comedy routine at the end of every episode. Yes. Being that, it's a really good one. I think my uh, second favorite would be uh, the one at the end of Shoreleaf. Because then everyone kind of comes back and they're like kind of being cagey about what they got up to. Because mm-hmm. I just was like, well, I know who got laid. and uh... <laughs> So, the changeling. Yeah, at one point he, he gives this weird little speech about how, oh, because we sent out a probe and got back this. It's like those fairies that would steal babies. Our baby's been stolen and replaced by something kind of similar, but it's kind of spooky. Oh, should we talk about perfection? Yes. Seems to be the only particular thing they reference in this episode. 90% of it is just Nomad wandering around the ship going, you're not perfect, I have to destroy you. You know, trying to sort of figure out what's about, uh, you know, trying to sort of, I guess, contain its sort of logic and movement and failing at that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so perfection. I was doing a bit of, a little bit of reading and there seemed to classically... About since Greek times and then brought back in during uh, during some Reformation thinking in the Renaissance, there seem to really be like two particular schools of ph- philosophical perfection thinking. Uh, one, one of them, let me guess, one of them's loose and one of them's more strict. Not exactly. It's a bit weird because one of them is fairly strict, but the other one is so inherently contradictory that it is a by nature paradoxical and i'm not sure why that's so accepted i I, maybe it's because uh there is a a inherent habit in folks to not you know sort of like okay perfection is this concept but it seems so so unrealistic so maybe there's more realistic version of it and that inherently means it's going to be you know be possible to exist in the real world and this is going to be much more messy than we, you know, sort of idealize perfection. Yeah. So the basic that is kind of the the other the first definition uh, that was more popularized during the Renaissance and probably influenced a lot of our modern day kind of work ethic uh, Protestant Reformation thinking, where imperfection is inherently perfect, which is in itself a paradox. But the idea there is that having something that is imperfect lets you work towards perfecting it. And that in itself, that that process of seeking perfection is perfect. More of a process as opposed to a state of being. A little bit. It's a little more processy than an actual state of being. The other is something that is perfect negates change. Because if it is perfect, it cannot change in any way, lest it cease being perfect. You know, there is no way to become more perfect. You are already perfect. Any change at all means it's no longer perfect. So in that case, uh, you know, it seems to be implying that nomad, in, you know, thinks of itself as unchanging perfect, as opposed to process. This was interesting because I got into a pretty long discussion yesterday with someone about these kind of different definitions of perfection and they raised a very interesting point that they feel that the unattainable the like perfection negates change is inherently unattainable unimaginable completely unreal concept is in fact much more useful 
than a realistic version of perfection that we find achievable. And that the kind of idea actually gels very, very well with the text of the episode. Because if you have something that you assume is an achievable perfection, it can lead to some very dangerous consequences by people who feel that they either have achieved or are working towards perfection. Because it can excuse quite a lot of things. Because yeah, you know, if I'm going to be seeking perfection and perfection is inherently a good thing, then anything I do in order to achieve that is thus a good thing as well, even if it's monstrous. It would be the perfect thing to do because you are working to achieve perfection, which that in itself is a perfect thing to be doing. And so suddenly you're justifying all sorts of horrible things. Which I guess Nomad does a little bit of that. <laughs> Murder of billions. Because I am perfect and they are not, and thus my perfection demands it. Otherwise, I will not be perfect. In the end of this episode, where Nomad assumes itself to be perfect and therefore all of its actions are justified, kind of exemplifies what can be the issue with this paradoxical version of achievable perfection. The episode's kind of telling you that perfection, or the quest for perfection, is inherently dangerous and possibly deadly. It is a, you know sort of a, a, a difference of values. You make perfection your core value and it starts driving you in a certain course of behaviors. Well, if your value is basically anything else, you're going to do things like, like, hey, life is probably a pretty good thing. We shouldn't be murdering. They're very critical of like the scientist before this. They, they do it as a we almost an aside talking about the Roy Kirk guy. The only reason they have that scene in there is to explain how the names are similar and the robot got confused. Yes. But they're very critical of him as a person seeking perfection, which is interesting in this kind of idea. It's not something that you would particularly expect someone to espouse as like seeking perfection is inherently negative. I guess it's a very Western idea of the time of don't try to be perfect, just do things. It's a very man of action style way of thinking you know uh you know trying to become perfect means you're not doing the what you're supposed to be doing whatever that might be because there's definitely a little bit of a more uh what we would call eastern tradition of dedicating yourself to the perfection of a task or ambition like the the crafts old style of craftsmanship where you would you know dedicate yourself to creating this perfect object knowing that you would never achieve this but kind of spending your time at doing it as more of a meditative practice that i suppose in the west trying to be perfect is wrong suppose it kind of negates consumer capitalism and mass production <laughs> so this would be somewhat in contrast to what people would kind of think of as platonic perfection sort of a idealized you know almost otherworldly you know uh, concept uh, that, you know, anything that actually exists in the world is a pale imitation of. Yeah, but not in such a... It's not framed in his thinking as this kind of bleak, like, oh, the world is a pale imitation of perfection. It's more of an aspirational, like, anything you do, imagine the perfect version of that thing, and then try to imitate it. So, uh, yeah, and in physics, there there is sort of a, uh, you know, ways to sort of approach problems... Uh, that help uh, you know approximate real real world situations by uh, generating the basic concepts you know mentally of uh, you know sort of idealized situations and uh, you know materials whatever uh, and then you use those to sort of start working the various you know physics at play so you can get a first pass approximation of what should be happening in the situation uh, and from there you can sort of refine that to get closer and closer to the real world. You know, adding in more factors that are, you know, <laughs> effectively less idealized, less, you know, semi-platonically uh, perfect here in order to sort of, uh, you know, you know, increase your odds of actually getting the answer correct. And uh, yeah, that's sort of you know, interesting that, you know, it's, it's, it's very much used as a tool in this case, uh, as opposed to an aspiration of this is where we're going to try to force the system to be. Well, that's what's kind of interesting with this um going along with this other article i was reading recently called the scientific blind spot where the the kind of basic problem that you tend to hit when you treat perfection as something that you can use as a tool 
is it's still something that a human being has to conceive of. Indeed. And that brings an inherent amount of human bias into the situation. So our fallibility will always screw something up. And that's kind of the idea with the scientific blind spot, is we want science and math to be completely objective things that just exist. But they can't be. Because no matter how hard you try to eliminate your biases or your variables or whatever, no matter what you do, the basic ideas that you are working are based off of a human perception of what we know as reality. Correct. So there's no way to fundamentally know anything outside of what we are capable of perceiving. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you go with like a physics model, even with a lot of modern quantum physics, or you're getting into these interesting things like, you know, the observation of something changes its basic form and function in the universe. Well, of course it does, because you couldn't even start measuring it before you observed it. And so, uh, you know, the, the whole concept of wave function collapse, uh, you know, it's like, okay, you know, we have, you know, is it... Was it actually in that state beforehand? We just weren't unable to tell, or is it actually in multiple states at the same time? And we're—it's kind of hard to sort of imagine what that actually would look like. But you know, to a certain degree, it doesn't really matter as well because we got lots of tricks to sort of work around that problem. Uh, <laughs> but um, the it does sort of lead to all sorts of fun things like different uh, interpretations of quantum mechanics, and uh, you know, I can go into those at some point with you, but. Uh, yeah, I think that's getting a little, little, little divergence from the conversation. Here. Yeah, but no matter what you do, everything still has to be based on a human perspective and human observation and human's ability to measure things. Uh -huh. Which kind of, like, there's another of my favorite Sir Terry Pratchett quotes. The general consensus dignified with the name reality. <laughs> Rather apt, yes. Um, I mentioned World of Darkness earlier. Uh, this actually... It does kind of remind me a little bit as well of, um, uh, I think it's a, a Mage of the Ascension. One of the sort of conceits is that to a certain degree, re the reality in the in the game there uh, is very much shaped by the consensus of the people within it. And the, you know, the fact that in the modern world, there's a sort of, you know, there's general rules, there's, you know, this is how things sort of work and things like that is a, you know, a product of that. The, these rules have been sort of, you know, decided over a long period of time by the consensus. And uh, as the, the wizards who are basically like, yeah, that's not how actually things work, uh, you know, break these rules, that just causes all sorts of weirdness. <laughs> uh, and so it, it's sort of a, it's sort of interesting sort of play on that concept that, uh, you know, this is, you know, how things work. And that also creates, you know, not just the perception of how things work, but how the world actually works, except for those uh, people that are able to break the rules. But once again, I'm diverging. <laughs> <laughs> well, it interestingly reminds me of a thing that I was I was looking at yesterday that was making some points as to the very notion that even something like language so defines the way that we think it actually completely alters our perceptions of reality. And they are, they are doing research now, I'm forgetting the name of the theory offhand, but they've been doing research now that it seems like being able to speak a different language can give you kind of a fundamentally different view on the nature of the world. A little bit more than just, you know, you have more words that describe X or Y things. You know, the, uh, the, the context, the, uh, the, you know, what, you know, how things sort of fit together in the language and sort of provide a certain amount of bias or thinking in one direction or another. Yeah, and also just kind of the way that different words describe different things, because you can translate something into English, but you're using the closest approximation of an English word that probably has a much different meaning than the original language word would have. And there are some terms that also don't translate at all, or translate in very funny fashions. Well, just think about like a few years ago, when people first started using schadenfreude as the the like german import word like yes. how often did anyone think about something like that before this and then afterward it's basically 90 percent of what anyone talks about online it's uh you know quite a mimetic spread there you know a, an infection of a, a bit of knowledge and then uh, suddenly everyone starts like oh yeah i guess we do sort of have this weird habit and uh 
I guess we're going to sort of maybe indulge it more because haha. <laughs> so if we circle back, mm-hmm. I kind of had this interesting idea when I was watching this episode that if Nomad was capable of actually wiping out all sentient life in the galaxy like it wants. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be able to achieve perfection because it would have destroyed the basic concept of perfection as a human concept. <laughs> because it's something that humans invented and is unique to like the way humans think. Even if another, you know, sentient animal has a concept of perfection, it's probably going to be a different concept than the one we have. Like our idea of perfection that we're talking about is something that we invented. So, uh, you know, a different uh, life form, different creatures you know, be they, you know, uh, you know, you know, your, your, your bunny rabbit over there or that Klingar over there, it's going to give us a different perspective on it. But uh, maybe, but here's another question that, on that uh, then. Uh, what if Nomad starts considering itself human? Well, it can't because it considers humans imperfect. Ah, but, but it talks about the biological units. doesn't really say you guys are humans. It's more of like you guys are like fleshy stuff, I guess. That's true. It could consider itself the perfect human. Yes, <laughs> for some definition of human. <laughs> so that was the thing, and it it was fine, but it, it kind of ruined the way that they wrapped up the episode for me a little bit. The, the definitional idea of perfection that's being presented in this episode from the perspective of Nomad is that Nomad is perfection. That is the, the measure by which it is judging perfection in other things nomad is perfect yes if you are not at least this perfect which is impossible then you are imperfect and thus must be destroyed or used for my purposes but if you point out that nomad is imperfect that can't be true it is it is definitionally impossible mm-hmm. so this shouldn't have worked should it should have to a certain degree tried to come up with a uh, a roundabout way to deny the evidence right in front of its face. It arguably would have just gone, you are wrong. I yeah. I am perfect. You don't know who you are. Yes. <laughs> you are not my creator, clearly. You are a liar. And, uh, you know, you've this has all been a ruse. And so I must destroy you now. Yeah. Or it just like, I decided you're my creator. I am perfect. You are my creator. And nothing you say is going to change that. Yeah. Also workable. <laughs> also, the fact that it said it could improve and repair the ship gets you to a weird place with that. Because if things that are imperfect have to be destroyed, then it should just destroy the ship instead of improving it until it's the point where it's, you know, passably perfect. Well, it does sort of, uh, you know, you know it seem to be driving its, uh, you know, crusade uh, mainly against organic sort of structures. So maybe it uh, feels things like spaceships as tools as opposed to entities that must be you know destroyed but it should have been able to repair itself then true when it points when the mistake is pointed out it'll go oh you're right mistake corrected now perfect again i'm going to uh, you know i've been damaged by these outside forces oh no i'm going to go uh, fix that Hmm, you have tried to compromise my imperfection but i've thwarted your attempts (laughs) haha foolish mortals this is the thing that you get into with these they like they talk about something like perfection or like what is opinion, what is music, and they don't give you anything. Just like, well, we're going to ask some questions, but it's really up to you guys to figure this out. So, Gepwin, what is music? No idea. I'm not musical. All right. I'm going to say something about, you know, a series of tones that are arranged in a, a certain, uh, you know, uh, you know, pattern that uh, are meant to, you know, elicit some sort of reaction from a listener. This is the thing. We actually kind of got to this in the discussion that I was having yesterday about perfection it's like music and art are definitionally useful in the same way that perfection is definitionally useful it is a thing that you can't define yes what is art what is music other than you know the the very technical dry version i just gave you as far as the definition goes yeah you know you know because you know technically someone running a belt sander is going to cause the mo- you know, an emotional response from someone eventually, because like, that's really annoying, and it's a rhythmic pattern of sounds. <laughs> and people have used that. There's, yep. there's Dadaist music that has used things like sandpaper and similar to create non-tonal noise music that 
you can define as music because it's like they said it was music so you have to consider it as such at least in at least far enough to discount it you got uh, you know you know music concrete which is pretty weird stuff you got like like super old school industrial i mean like not industrial rock like nine inch nails but like we're going to have some weird sounds and they're going to be kind of like sound like a factory or something like that that kind of stuff uh and then you got things like you know you know more modern like uh you know like you know people are familiar with the you know the term uh, hardcore techno and things like that but there's like stuff that goes even way beyond that to like uh you know noise core and terror core which are just kind of painful to listen to but they're kind of music it kind of really stretches the definition as far as you know you know you know general you know people are you know are willing to go um but you know it's music to somebody so it counts. It doesn't even have to be music to somebody. You just have the the entire <laughs> thing with the with like music, art, etc. as definitional things is the debate about what they are is part of the thing. Yes. Like the idea that you can take a blank canvas and put it in the museum and say that you now must consider this as art and talk about it is part of the purpose. Yeah. <laughs> it is uh to to a certain question thing you know it's 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 the asking of the question it is you know you know what is and what is not and does that question even make sense sometimes well see it's the it's the thing with the question always makes sense and the thing that doesn't make sense is assuming that it has an answer sometimes things don't lots of things don't it's one of the reasons that you get into problems when you hit things like these like you know, super logic beings that they like to prevent mm-hmm. present in science fiction. Sometimes, uh, you know, you need you, it'd be nice to run into something that that realizes the world's a very messy place. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an odd one. I I can understand it from our modern way of thinking, but like humans are not like made of logic or something. We are inherently emotional, and most everything we do mentally is based on some version of that. Logic is more of a definitional structure that you use to explain things. You know, a, a tool, not necessarily the core of ourselves. Well, we, we've done pretty deep dive here, actually. <laughs> well, like sometimes when you have to stretch to find what they were talking about, you get more interesting stuff. Um, I got something else to mention, uh, you know, for, for a little bit, if you're All right. Um, so are you familiar with the term von Neumann probe? No. Sounds uncomfortable. Well, it can be. Uh, so the basic idea of a von Neumann probe is to allow a uh, some sort of civilization to explore a, a large per- uh, region of space uh, via robots. And they send out a few probes, and then they, they find resources out there and start replicating, and then they do this over and over and over again. Ah, so it's the self-replication yes. probe. That was an episode of, uh, of Justice League of America. Yeah, so I'm not necessarily saying that Nomad here is a, a von Neumann probe, but it does have some behavior similar to a variation on it uh, called a berserker, uh, which, you know, you know, you know, is a term that came out of actually a literature, I believe, originally um, by uh, someone named uh, Fred Saberhagen, Hagen, something like that. Um, I'm mispronouncing his name. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the, so you get these, uh, you know, you know, self-replicating probes out there. They go out there and basically murder everything else, you know, other than the original aliens, hopefully. <laughs> uh, and so as we sort of go through this episode, I'm like thinking, all right, so a lot of, you know, it's like, okay, they say this sort of soil sample thing and it's sterilizing that, but it's, so I'm like, that only kind of makes sense because, you know, how do you go from, you know, s- sterilize soil samples to sterilize everything, even with, you know, sort of weird twisted logic? I guess it kind of, makes sense kind of in the context of the show but the result is still kind of the same that they that nomad has become uh, effectively a non-replicating version of this you know berserker sort of probe uh at least so far now who knows there might be a whole bunch of other ones out there floating you know somewhere deep in space um and uh yeah it's gone out and uh, taken up accidentally perhaps a a crusade to destroy all uh, forms of light life everywhere Except its home world, which it might still do anyway. Well, they do kind. Of, they do make this inference that the whatever alien probe it came into contact with would have been capable of self-repair, yes. but also integrating other things into itself. 
almost like it's alive, like it's living, like it's integrating strange alien technologies in, into it, almost like it's co-opting their, their civilization, their, their uniqueness, like some sort of, I don't know, Borg or something. Ah, uh, something like that, that also is known for scooping up soil samples. As well as the buildings around them. <laughs> it's an interesting one. Now that you mention it, like, the thing that they were getting into was a very, very English language logic. Oh, because they took two they took two concepts. They took seek out life and sterilize soil samples and smushed them together so that the words created seek out life and sterilize. Yeah. <laughs> you sort of cut it in a certain way and that makes sense with the like weird fuzziness of English. But it wouldn't make sense if you're working with something that's supposed to be a purely logical being. Maybe it's a, a matter of the programming languages involved. Uh, you know, I'm, what was it? It's a Lisp, but that's like sort of conversational as far as its, its terminology. There's like a certain school of computer science that wants to push more for English language programming or real language programming, I guess they would call it. Yeah, and, uh, you know, add five to this, you know, subtract that and uh, put this in that data. and uh, Sort of similar, you know, straightforward, you know, English language sort of terms as opposed to equal sign, brackets, random function name, do this, plus, plus, semicolon. Woe betide thee who forgets the semicolon. Yes. <laughs> Some weird stuff could happen if you're not careful. I've, no, I've done it. <laughs> yeah, the, so... So there might be some funky product with that, but also this the uh, the the Nomad probe itself was supposed to be an advanced AI of some sort, uh, which would maybe imply that it's not using a simplified uh, programming language like that. But you know, you know hy hypothetically, you'd, you you know, want to go uh, you know semi close to machine language so you can make uh, you know full use of it as and allow it to be a a complete entity on a very limited hardware footprint. It's weird how they keep running into human-made AIs all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, Landrew, though, uh, was he alien, though? They weren't unclear. Okay. <laughs> they do sort of an odd thing with this one where they they don't care whether Nomad is sentient or not. It's like, well, it's a menace, and we got to sort of contain it and then figure it out and hope it doesn't kill us all. They never, you know, they never talk about it at all I, I was thinking like this kind of also just since it's basically the only other thing in the episode with the ai is it's it's an interesting demonstration of kind of what seemed to be the two major philosophical thinkings on artificial intelligence which are either the kind of turing version which is it's ne you're never going to know and that doesn't matter or the other version which was like the chinese room idea of no matter how much it seems like it knows, it is never possible to be artificially intelligent. So you have one where it's like, you're never going to figure it out, so who cares? And one that's it's just not possible ever. Though I suppose, like, a, the Turing one makes a lot more sense with how we judge, you know, sentience in others. Like, I have no particular way of knowing you're sentient, except for you seem very similar to me, and you act in a similar way, and I'm pretty sure that I'm sentient. I'm actually a haunted potato. Sorry. But she could be a sentient haunted potato. Shh, don't tell anyone. That pe freak people out. You're a haunted potato that can pass the Turing test. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Isn't that the end of Portal 2? <laughs> Pretty close, actually. <laughs> now I kind of want to play Portal again. <laughs> I think when we, start, when we start going on about video games, it's probably, uh, probably a good time to say that we should wrap it up. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, maybe we should move on to some sort of, uh, you know, you know, I should finish tabulating these points here and uh, we can move on to that section. Yes. Something like the galaxy's favorite game show. Woo!
Hey everybody, I have finished up tallying the various points for everybody that was in on today's episode, and we got some, uh, some, some, some prizes to give out here. Uh, the first award is the Everybody Loves Robots Award, which goes to Nomad for being a mobile mechanical intelligent being of some sort with a thirst for mass murder. What does he win, Gepwin? Nomad wins one of those cute robot dogs that they sold at Sharper Image during like the mid-90s and early thousands. Everyone loved those things and they were cute and trendy. Woof woof and yeah, adorable. (laughs) Our second award is slightly related, but kind of not. The Hard Drive Brain Award, which goes to Yohura for getting her mind completely erased, probably destroying every semblance of her personality and history and uh, memories from when she grew up and all that fun stuff, but being okay in time for next episode all the same. What does she win, Gepwin? Yohura wins a year's free cloud storage. If she had a backup, this wouldn't have happened. Back up your data and brain. Back up your data, including your brain data. It'd be very useful someday when you run into alien probes that are not quite alien probes. Hmm. Our third award goes once again to uh, Kirk. It's the Talk It to Death Award, because he does seem to be doing that again. Hmm. Um, what does he win, Gepwin? Kirk wins his very own daytime talk show where no computer is safe. Oh, Kirk, I think you're going to be, uh, you know, uh, you know a, a well-watched show, but maybe one where the computers try to avoid you. I hope they, uh, they're, you know, I hope for their sakes their agents are good enough to keep them away. No, thanks to all of our contestants for joining us. I hope they enjoy their prizes and join us next week on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Next week is pretty famous. One of the more famous episodes. It's one that I'm looking forward to a little more. This is probably one of the two episodes of the original series that I have seen more than once. Is the other one involving triples? Yes, it is. <laughs> so next week's episode's not involving triples, guys. No, this one doesn't involve triples at all. It does involve a transporter accident. Yes, transporter accident, skimpier outfits leather leather yeah it's uh seems like my kind of party where do i sign up (laughs) some really really cool knives blades knives um you know uh, some some facial hair yes the the origin of the facial hair and something that they used later in a very awkward way in ds9 a few times yeah (laughs) all right next week is the original series episode mirror mirror but not on the wall, just mirror, mirror. Yes. Where Kirk and company are accidentally transported to the alternate mirror universe, where instead of being good old-fashioned helpful people, Earth has become some sort of fascist military dictatorship. Oh, dear. Hmm. Let's try to avoid that future. In space. In space. <laughs> With goatees. With goatees. <laughs> oh. Interesting. This like starts the whole alternate universe thing in Star Trek. They yeah, so. use it later in DS9. Oddly, my absolute favorite use of this was actually the two-part episode of Star Trek Enterprise. I, I recall there being a uh, you know a you know a, a mirror universe uh, you know bit in uh, Enterprise, but I never saw that one myself. Uh, so you're saying it's good? Yeah, it's like. It's, I would argue it's one of the only episodes worth watching. The only problem is to under, to like you have to know who the characters are because that's the whole idea. Hmm. Is that these are the alternate evil universe versions of the characters. But they set the entire thing in the alternate universe. They even changed the, the theme song intro oh. to be <laughs> the evil Terran Empire Star Trek. And it's just the actors from from enterprise like actually getting to act and chew the scenery and do all of the weird alternate universe evil fascist stuff and it's it's like very good like wait we're gonna be like ridiculous versions of ourselves sweet (laughs) but you get something similar here but the the same amount of scenery chewing is normal 
because <laughs> they, they already chew the scenery pretty well here i think we're gonna have some good things to talk about though it's gonna be another good evil episode are you good or evil well you can find out when you join us next week on watches of tomorrow next time on watchers of tomorrow we ask the question are you evil because you have a goatee or do you have a goatee because you're evil You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>